Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So, welcome, and welcome to those of you who are a few new faces. So, uh, make sure if you're new and I don't know you that you come and say hello. Uh, not right now, but at the end of the evening. Um, um, because sometimes uh, this room gets a little bit busy, and we don't always uh, get a chance to go over the details of the meditation posture and so on. I just want to let you know that uh, in March I plan to offer a one-day day day where we uh, go over the sitting posture and how to have a daily practice and so on. seems we need to do that every once in a while. And um, We just came off a, a really wonderful day on Saturday. Uh, where um, we sat for the day in an unstructured practice and um, people could come. It was the precepts course and so we sat for the day and people could come in and out during the day and it was really, really beautiful. um, So important um, to nourish the inner monk, the inner nun and all of us who under the surface really uh, is so uh, nourished by uh, quietness and um, then that person can flow through us and uh, we can respond to our lives way more creatively so uh, I wanted to start tonight uh, with a couple of letters you, you won't believe how many letters I get. It's really an odd thing. And um, even I, I took my email address off the website, and now they come here. <laughs> so it's good because the postal service is alive again. <laughs> I didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, and uh, anyways, I, I wanted to read a, a, couple, a couple letters. Um, this is from somebody who uh, came to the all-day sit on Saturday. Um, we were in two rows, two long, three rows, uh, single file, facing the windows. And uh, as Laurie described, you know, you could feel the sun 
on your face the whole day, uh, crossing over. What a nicer way to measure time, I think. Uh, Here's what someone wrote. I watched my partner's spine all day, and I watched them breathing all day. I watched them all day. (laughs) There are periods after every sentence. All day. I watched him breathe in front of me I watched and breathed, and I was totally, totally silent. Then, at the end of the day, as I was leaving, I said goodnight to him, and he said goodnight, and then I cried. I realized I saw the whole thing, the whole him, the whole of both of us, our whole lives. What else is there? And then I realized I knew him better than I know my husband. And then it ends. (laughs) It's not signed, and I don't know who wrote this. But I really, I get it. I get the sentiment. And um, when, when you sit... You know, I think it's interesting how some people at center of gravity are really split. They feel like, oh, I practice next to someone sometimes for a couple of years, and I don't know anything about them. And I feel really sometimes disconnected from the social life of the community. And then some people say, sitting next to somebody, especially on a silent retreat, I'm so intimate with their hair with their spine, in a way that I know them. I totally know them, even though I don't, I don't know them. It's an interesting paradox, I think. And uh, uh, yesterday was Monday, and yesterday I met people. Some of you know that uh, usually once a month there's a day where I can meet people to talk about your practice. And um, uh, his partner just left him after 14 years just walked out and uh, so he's a complete complete mess you know and um, um, sometimes when you really are on your knees you know uh, actually what you're feeling is so simple and the thing that came out of mess he was crying and he said I don't get it why she left and uh, he said uh I have a PhD. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, uh, do do you know anything about what you're feeling? He's like, yeah, and he explained for half an hour. And then at the end he's like, I don't get it, I don't get it. And so I said, uh, do do you know... um, you know, these things just come to you sometimes. I said, do you know uh, what water is? Said, oh, well, I, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, well, water. You, you know, he's like, yeah, yeah, I, I drink it. And I said, yeah, you're made of it, you know, like 78% or whatever. And he said, uh, yeah, yeah. And I wash my face and I 
you know, he has a cottage and he says, and I, you know, I swim in it and so on. And I said, do you, do you know what water is? Do you know what water is? And he said, uh, is this some kind of Buddhist joke? <laughs> and I said, no, this is, this is your life. And I think for all of us, in a way, one of the things this practice is doing is it's a practice of renunciation. And as we're going to explore in this text we're studying, even though we think that we're gaining something, um, actually we're letting go over and over of fixed views that um, are really the enemy of creativity and of eccentricity and of um, really being alive in your life. And sometimes when things fall apart, that's like a cliche now, that term, isn't it? When things fall, when things scare you or whatever, places that scare you, when you're in the places that scare you. I'm going to give a talk one night and I'm going to do all the Pema Chodron covers. I'm just going to put them together and read it. I wanted to teach a yoga class, too, where, like... You teach all the like all the cliched sentences that yoga teachers say, and you just go through it like, open your heart, as if your heart could open in you know, a posture. You know. Uh, anyways, that's an aside. I don't know where I was going with that. Oh, let me read you another letter. Dear Michael, there are times when I become deeply anxious about how grim the future can look for the planet and the most vulnerable people living on it. In a lot of ways, what I'm reading these days, in, in what I'm reading these days, there is great discussion about the role of monasteries and how people should learn to live like monks. This anxiety can be paralyzing for me, but I know I can find solid ground in my practice and in this sangha. And... Uh, interesting, isn't it? You know, again, this theme of renunciation. You know, like what it means when we practice is to let go of what's fixed so that we can um, really enter our lives. And um, Maybe in these times, the, the big question that we all are staring at is that our world is really about to change. Um, this this easement that's happening in the American economy, building back a new economy that just completely collapsed, reliance on oil. I could go through a list that I won't. Um, and uh, I think a lot of the values that we hold on to are really going to be important in the next decade. And um, so having uh, your inner nun... I've had it with the inner child, so now it's inner nun, <laughs> alive and functioning. I think is so crucial, um, and you know that that person um, needs to be taken care of, because it too can also be commercialized and consumerized and so on. Okay, those are the letters. It'd be good if we had like a letter, of, like a le- letter time, or something. <laughs> I don't know. Doesn't like, don't they do that on talk shows? Like they read the letters first? <laughs> I met David Letterman once. And when you meet David Letterman, he, he doesn't sign autographs to people. He has a business card. And it says on it, 
You have met David Letterman. <laughs> he is a good man. And then on the back is his signature. And so he won't sign anything. He just, he just gives you his business card. <laughs> I love that so much. Okay. So, um, we have been studying together a text. We began last week, and we're going to continue through the essay until we are done. I thought it would take three weeks, but it will take double that, I think, at the rate we're going. Uh, this is a text written by a Zen teacher named Norman Fisher, who lives uh, and teaches in the Bay Area. And it's called The Eight Stages of Monastic Practice. And um, I think if you read between the lines, you'll see that what he's articulating are really the eight stages of any relationship. And the patterns that we of attachment and the patterns of aversion that we bring in to any relationship repeat themselves. They replicate themselves. And so um, when you talk about the patterns that you bring to a lover, they're the same patterns that you bring to your livelihood, to your yoga mat, to your relationship with the body, but we don't see them that way because we're always focused on the content of them, not the kind of like underlying structure of them. And um, I think his essay really captures this, and um, I hope we can all learn something from it. So I printed 40-something copies last week, so I assume everybody has one and brought it. Because I assume that, I printed another 30. Um, so maybe we can pass them around. Uh, and you probably will have to share with a, with a neighbor. Last week we talked about the honeymoon stage. So I'd like to start uh, reading from the end of the honeymoon stage. So just as a reminder, the honeymoon stage is when you come in contact with something new. Um, you fall for it. You know, and I think in our practice, we all have fallen for something, and this is a wonderful time. Uh, the problem is, is that when you uh, idealize something or you romanticize something, you're not actually really in relationship with it. What's happening is you're in relationship with an idealized version of it. And uh, the best part about that in human relationships is it's okay because the other person's doing it to you also. <laughs> and uh, then you've merged together, and this can go on for a long time, maybe even 14 years. And um, eventually, though, the honeymoon comes to an end because it's unsustainable, because there's no relationship happening. And this is a really good thing, because um, uh, even being on the receiving end of someone's idealization... Uh, they miss you. And the thing is, and this is where we ended last week, is that 
If you think about these eight stages as kind of like developmental patterns in all of us, whatever stage you've been wounded in your life, you tend to um, uh, repeat uh, later on. And so as we go through these stages, you can also, you know, maybe kind of reflect and see like, oh, is this maybe where I've been wounded? And maybe you can even see patterns sometimes where, oh, everyone ends at stage three. (laughs) I love it until stage two. I hang in there in stage three. And then I'm out. (laughs) Or they're out. Every time, stage six, they're gone. And this is a really interesting thing to explore. And and, uh, in the west end of the city, this doesn't happen very much. But in the rest of Toronto, people are really (laughs) struggling with this, you know. And... uh, that's mostly um, because they drive. <laughs> so, can we start? Uh, this stage can last for some time. Sam, do you want to read? Sure. Have you got one? Okay, where am I? Sorry. Uh, yeah. This stage can last for some time. Yeah. All these. Just this stage can last, and we'll just oh, read along. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you, can you handle this? Yeah, I think I can do it. <laughs> this stage can last for some time, but it usually comes to an end in fairly short order. We enter the second stage, the stage of disappointment or betrayal. Of course, what happens is we lose the sense of contrast with the world at large, and what's inside us becomes stronger than our perception of the newness of our surroundings. Whatever festering problems we have, known and unknown, that were held in abeyance while we marveled at the greatness of the religious life, now come out full-blown. And rather than see them for what they are, our own internal contradictions, we project them outward onto the community. We begin to see the truth, that there are plenty of imperfections. The food gets tiring. The people aren't as nice as they were a few months ago. The many restrictions on our lifestyle becomes wearing. We begin to notice a lack of creativity and energy in our fellow practitioners, especially in some of the (laughs) old-timers. We're a little sleep-deprived and weary. And we begin to notice, too, that there are many baffling and unacceptable aspects to the teachings. In fact, on one hand, the teachings sound purposely confusing and incomprehensible. And on the other hand, they sound suspicious in many cases, like the religion we grew up in and fled from. And the teachers turn out to be a lot less fantastic than we first imagined. We're seeing them stumble and make mistakes, and if we haven't seen it, we've heard about it. Or if we haven't heard about it or seen it, then the teachers are perhaps a little too perfect. There's something suspicious and even coercive about their piety. Are they really real? Little by little, a sense of disillusionment, of betrayal, comes over us. All of these perceptions. Let's let someone else read it. Oops, Grant, yeah. Grant, do you want to? <clears throat> All of these perceptions, as disturbing as they are, are in fact quite true. So when we bring them up, no one tries to talk us out of them. Old timers in the community may become defensive, but they can't really disagree. Yet the truth of all this doesn't really account for what we're feeling. Cheated and disappointed. The only thing that accounts for that is our inner pain. We were feeling, for a moment, better, redeemed. And now, suddenly, we feel even worse than when we came. 
And eventually we realize that imperfect though the community is, and it may even be worse than imperfect, it may be in some ways actually toxic. It's us, not it, that is the source of our present suffering. It can take a while to come to this, sometimes a very long time, if there are, as there have been in many communities of all religious traditions over the years, flagrant cases of betrayal by leaders or other important community members. But whether it comes soon or only after many years, and whether its causes are spectacular or quiet, it is something we have to come to on our own. Because when we're deeply disappointed with the community, it's hard for long-term committed community members to point out that it's our eye, not the visual object, that's cloudy. They can't tell us this because they know we won't hear it. They know that if they tell us this, they will only appear to us to be defending the status quo. <coughs> and we will mistrust them for it. And besides, many of them don't understand that this is the case anyway. Many of them are themselves confused about the community and where it, and they begin and end. So for all these reasons, the older members of the community tolerate us and our views. And there is very little they can do to help us through this stage. If we feel this sense of betrayal or disappointment acutely enough, and especially if a difficult personal incident happens to us when we are in the midst of it, we may very well leave the community in a huff, which happens, though seldom, and when it does, it's a real tragedy. If this doesn't happen then, it is likely that after enough time goes by, we will realize what's really going on. Now we Let's let someone else read the next paragraph. Rose? Now we begin to get the picture that there's a lot that has been going on in our lives for a long time that we were simply unaware of. We came to the community to find peace, to live in a kind of utopia, expecting that that will make up for the fact that we ourselves aren't entirely perfect human beings. Perhaps in this utopia we will, be, we will become enlightened and our problems will end. Few of us actually think these thoughts that baldly, but in fact, most of us have some fuzzy and unexamined version of them in our minds as we arrive. But instead of this scenario, we find that we're living in an extremely flawed community, and that far from being not entirely perfect, we're actually a raging mass of passion, confusion, bitterness, hatred, and contradiction. And the state of anything remotely like enlightenment, or even a little peace of mind, is very far away. In other words, we're much worse off now than when we began. So we have to acknowledge that the job we've undertaken is much larger, larger than we thought. It's going to take quite a while. And part of what we need to do is make up our minds that we're really going to do it. We're really going to roll up our sleeves and stay in it for the long haul. One or two or three thousand lifetimes. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, Earlier I talked about having meetings with people and one of the things I often felt uh, when I started studying is I thought that um, Western teachers were like lesser than and it was better to study with somebody who was from an Asian country and I would get a much higher teaching and um, so that's what I did and um, um, 
actually what happens in those kind of situations is that um, you are studying with someone who really doesn't understand the cultural context for your life. And um, I even watched some teachers come from Asia to, stu- to teach here. And they would show up here and they wouldn't ask any questions about their lifest- our lifestyle here, you know. And, and they would just think everyone was lazy, actually, you know. And um, uh, it made me think a lot about, you know, how important it is to understand the, the context of your gender and your age and how you are in the culture. And um, one of the reasons why we've set up Center of Gravity in this way, and one of the ways that I'm referring to is, you know, having relationships with each other. So in the precepts course that we're doing, for example, uh, everybody in the course has a buddy that they meet every single week and explore whatever it is that's going on for them in relationship to the course. Um, I'm available, there are other people available where we can meet you and talk about what's really going on in your life. And those meetings are not psychotherapy. Uh, if psychotherapy is needed, you are referred to a psychotherapist, although I think most of the people who are doing the meetings are psychotherapists. <laughs> um, and, um, and it's important so that we can really talk about what is a practice and what does it mean to, to live in a religious way without the structure that so many of us have fled from in the religions that we grew up in. And this year, I really became uh, um, uh, unhappy with this term spirituality or, or even yoga. Like when I'm on an airplane and people are like, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> so many things. What do you do? <laughs> and um, uh, to, to kind of bring this word religious back, you, you know, this doesn't necessarily mean religion, but it means to live in a way where you're really committed to values uh, that stem from a recognition of interdependence and, and the, the importance of living a life where there's a balance of, you know, community embeddedness and also um, the cultivation of a, of a self and to see that this self, this, this art piece that we're making that we call a self is an is a elastic process. And, and to use that positive way of thinking about the, the elasticity of the self as a way of seeing emptiness, as opposed to seeing the self as this thing that you negate, it's this thing that we see clearly is not, does not have a, a substantiality that continues in time and space. It's fiction. And um, yet, at the same time, we also have this self with these idiosyncrasies that sometimes are really wonderful and are why people love us and how we can love other people through these weird little idiosyncrasies or big idiosyncrasies. (laughs) And then at the same time, um, they also get us into trouble. And I think if we don't have intimate relationships with our community and with teachers and with texts and, and this whole lineage all the way back to the sun, then I think we're, uh, we don't ever get to see where we're stuck. And so I made a little list that I wanted to go over, which is how we get stuck when the honeymoon ends and what shows up. And I want to talk about it really in terms of practice. 
So there's a list of what I see in meetings with you. And what happens with me all the time. So uh, here's the list. Some of you also might know that I hate lists. And you know, I, it takes a lot of work to make these lists. And, but I, I'm up for the challenge. So anyways, the no particular order. Uh, number one, what I'm really looking for and what I see happening when we're stuck in our practice is exaggerated detachment. Where, it, especially after retreat, where people have really experienced stillness and quietude, and then they come into their life trying to keep it going, and they just like, nothing touches me. <laughs> and they walk around like, you know, I'm a monk, that's the world. <laughs> And uh, this can go on for years. And actually, uh, you don't realize that you don't feel anything. And then the more you don't feel, the more stiff you become. But actually, the better it is. Because then other people don't touch you anymore. And uh, if somebody tries to bring this up with you, you just analyze them until they're out of the way. <laughs> you know. So that's really exaggerated attachment, and I'm sure you've all seen it in other people. Uh, number two, which is related, but I think deserves its own category, is emotional numbing. And this is when you actually use your practice to not feel anything. And... You can actually meditate in a way, and I would say this about the yoga poses too. I, th I think that you, know, you see this a lot like in more rigorous forms of asana, where people really they just push through everything. And it, it's also a kind of numbing, you know, where you're not really actually embodied in the pose. And for those of you who come to my yoga classes, you know, I've been teaching the same thing every week for like a long time and uh, it's amazing how many years it takes to just get this you know? and so the whole practice comes alive in a second this woman sitting behind this man's back and seeing his spine and then realizing herself simultaneously and then even though it happens in a second it takes a long time, like a really long time, actually. And although maybe we have moments of it, we think that uh, the moments are dependent on the condition. So, for example, you know, I had the experience because of the LSD, right? Or because of, you know, the right music or whatever. But actually, it's not the condition exactly, it's actually what happened in consciousness, in those moments where we have insight. Number three, anger phobia. There is not a spiritual community I've ever seen 
that does not have a passive-aggressive element. (laughs) When anger is not valued. And when you're angry, you take care of it. And for those of you who don't live in the context of community, there's not a real motivation to take care of your anger, actually. Because there's only one or two people around you, you get angry, you heal, it's okay. Watch your hair on the flames. <laughs> Might get you angry. <laughs> Did you see her with the flames coming over her hand, running across the room? Um, anger phobia, we've all seen it before, right? This kind of devaluation. Anger is bad. And, uh, you know, if anger was a bad thing, then, I mean, how would any change come about? You know, what we need to do is really learn how to work with our anger. And, you know, I'm not going to go too much into anger tonight. Because every time we start, it's like we can't get out of it for weeks. You know, we have to talk and debate it. Anger phobia. Next. Um, overly tolerant or blind compassion. I actually think that, you know, if you really study the saints and the bodhisattvas and you really try and live like that, it's actually a pathological altruism. Most of us can't live like that. And we try and go through life, you know, uh, I'm compassionate for all beings. And it's bullshit. We're not there yet. And it's like this costume that we're wearing but we're not actually living it yet. And uh, this is a place a lot of us get stuck. And it's a kind of inflation, actually. Uh, Next, weak boundaries. You know, becoming... I'm so open. I'm so open, you know. Come into my home. Come and let me make some food for you. I'm so, you know... Uh, yes, you become a yes person, you know. And actually, this is also dangerous at a community level, because when it, when when people in the community don't have good boundaries, they become yes people. And then you have these disgusting communities where you have like these people who run the show, and just everybody's saying yes to everything, and there's no personality left, you know. And that's why I say to people. You know, how do you find a teacher? I always say, go check out the community and watch carefully and see if people have independent, uh, oddball lives, you know. And to make sure that people in the community are suffering. Next, uh, overemphasizing the positive. <laughs> Did you just put up your hand? Yeah, <laughs> I'm feeling that laugh. Overemphasizing the positive. Next. <laughs> Cognitive intelligence being way ahead of emotional intelligence or social intelligence. At my son's school, um, he goes to an alternative school just down the road here called Alpha, and um, 
it's a really funny school because nobody really learns anything there actually. <laughs> um, but but a couple things happen that are really interesting. One is every day at three o'clock they have a half an hour meeting where the whole school comes together and makes the rules. And the kids chair the meeting from grade one to grade six. So a kid in grade one is, is chairing a meeting of the whole school, 65 kids. And if a teacher wants to speak, they have to put up their hand. And the, the kid may not pick them. <laughs> and, they, and they make all kinds of rules. The rule they made last week was, um, if it's lunchtime and somebody asks you to eat something from your lunch, they're only allowed to ask three times. <laughs> And like, they're, the kids are so excited about this rule. Uh, so, <laughs> so the parents introduced this program at school called Real Food for Real Kids, or something, where they have like organic, uh, healthy food for all the kids. And the kids voted they don't want it anymore. <laughs> it's out. <laughs> So, there are boundaries there to work with, but at the same time, it really teaches social intelligence. And my mother, who's a teacher, comes sometimes to pick up my son from school and says, what are they learning here? <laughs> my son can read really, really well, but there's some kids who like, can't really get it together to read it. And I think, it's okay. I mean, watch them in a meeting. It's unbelievable how they listen to each other. But sometimes the way we learn, you know, our cognitive intelligence is so far beyond. And uh, the more you go through school, the more that the other forms of intelligence get squashed. And then we, we, you know, we build a culture on these values, you know, which are the same values that whenever there is some kind of creative juice that doesn't come out of cognitive intelligence, we idealize it. And it's worth a lot of money, and we hang it on our walls, and we romanticize the lives of the people who, who do that. Um, debilitating, there's ten, this is number eight. Debilitating judgment about one's shadows. After the honeymoon period starts to end, maybe this is how it ends, you start seeing some of your stuff that you haven't wanted to pay attention to. And if you judge it too harshly, then you push it back again. And what happens in spiritual practice is that we all hear the stories of the great teachers, and I tell them every week, you know. And then I need to be like that. But then these other parts of our lives start to come, and it's like, well, there's no story about that thing I do. <laughs> and so we just, I don't know what to do with it. So I kind of like push it back again. You know, I mean, when you read the, le- the lives of the Chinese monks, you know, at the end of the retreat, they get drunk on cherry wine and then they go to the brothel <laughs> to take care of their life. You know? And... You know, I have some friends who teach at Spirit Rock out in California. When they finish teaching a 10-day retreat, all the teachers go and get burgers and fries. 
because they, they take care of that energy, that shadow, you know. And if you don't respect that, then you become too pure. And uh, then people who are too pure don't come for interviews. Because when you're pure, you're actually scared of impurity. And you don't want any feedback. No, no one here. <laughs> Number nine, devaluing the personal relative to the spiritual. I'm doing so well in the spiritual practice, I don't really need to... The spiritual practice will just take care of all the other stuff. And uh, eat the best meditators all have old wounds that are not going to be healed just through stillness because they're relational. Some people say, oh, you know, that's, I've got a lot of trouble in relationships, so I'm just not going to do it anymore. <laughs> Have you ever said that to yourself? I'm done. (laughs) Um, Number 10. uh, Delusional claims about arriving. So in Sanskrit, there's this term from the uh, Vedas called uh, neti neti which is actually made of, of two worm, uh, worms. Uh, eti, which means this or that, and na, which is actually where we get the English word no. So it means not this, not that. Neti, neti. Which I always think sounds like naughty, naughty. <laughs> Bad lady. And um, neti, neti means no. In the Heart Sutra, we chant no. No eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue. The, the word in, in, you know, when you chant it in the Chinese is mu. No, no, no. And this is what my job is on retreat when people have special experiences. Is to say, no. <laughs> you know, it happens a lot when we sit more into the night and people have like cool hallucinations. And it's, it's like, they're like, I saw Christ. <laughs> or whatever. Um, and it's like, no. no. And um, or, you know, you, you really, you know, there's a teaching and you get it. And you get it. And I, and I mean you really get it. And then the ego comes in and owns it somehow and inflates you. I got it. I got it. And you get, it's like a metaphysical valium. You know, it's like, oh, I, I see how the universe works. <laughs> Which is the same as the person I was describing yesterday who said, I have a PhD. And at the same time he's saying, and it, it's not helping me here. I have a career, I have a persona, I have an income, I have a following, I have friends on Facebook. <laughs> you know, it doesn't mean anything anymore, I guess. Um, maybe I'll stop there. So, so these are the ten aspects. Exaggerated detachment, emotional numbing, anger phobia, overly tolerant or blind compassion, 
weak boundaries, overemphasizing the positive, overemphasizing the positive, overemphasizing the positive. <laughs> Cognitive intelligence being far ahead of emotional intelligence, debilitating judgment about the shadow side, devaluing the personal relative to the spiritual, and delusional claims about arriving. These are the things that show up at the end of the honeymoon in our practice that stop us and often make us quit and run away. So I want to add those because I think Norman Fisher is mostly talking about the community dynamics. But there's other, I think, deeper psychological stuff going on for people that emerges in the practice. And that's good. It's really good. But you have to swallow your projection. So before I, 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 I'll, I'll end there, but what do you have to say about this? What, what do you think about this? Does this resonate with you? Has anybody here felt this? You know, this kind of like honeymoon? Maybe you've come to meditation and say, oh, I'm home. Or you've come here and you said, this is the center of gravity has been in a few different locations. And maybe it's like, oh, there was a golden era <laughs> where it was three of us in Parkdale, you know, and we, you know, didn't even have a toilet. And like a refusal to, to see what's going on for you in how you see the community or define community. Because center of gravity doesn't exist. There is no thing called center of gravity, actually. Center of gravity is what happens when we're here and how we think about it in our imagination. But it doesn't exist, actually. We'll get to that. Okay, I'm talking. Somebody. Let's, let's, Marcella. I feel like the honeymoon is when people enter teacher training, and then what comes out of that is the disappointment and betrayal. Yeah. I took their teacher training and they didn't hire me. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, a question that comes up for me all the time is yeah. uh, in terms of swallowing my projection, yeah. um, it's not you, it's me. Like what? Sometimes it is them, <laughs> and uh, the whole notion of like premature commitment. So on some level, I know that I'm going to put stuff on that person or that yeah. place yeah. that's unfair and that's my yeah. shit. Yeah. But sometimes, you know, you need to leave. Yeah. So like to navigate that. Yeah. The next stage is commitment, and how that happens. So maybe we'll let Norman respond to that when we get to that. But the stage between the ending of a honeymoon and the commitment should take a really long time. A really long time. Like years. Yeah. So we, I think we need to be disappointed and have doubt before we can really develop some faith. It's like this for any of us in relationship, you know. When you're in relationship, the person who you're with needs to really touch your wound. Like, they need to really, you know, 
squeeze lemon (laughs) on where you're most wounded before you can talk about commitment, I think. Otherwise, you're not really committing to something that's beyond the images you have of each other. So I think usually that's the idea of a marriage. is like, you know, we've completely tortured each other. And now let's have a party, you know, and a, and a celebration. And uh, I watch over and over that this is how marriages work, is that everything is going good, you decide to get married, and then that six months leading up to your marriage is hell, actually. Because the universe creates a test for you. you know. Um, you, know. you see this with any kind of like phase. You know? The, the, the wounds that we're hoping someone's going to squeeze lemon in, yeah. we you know, protect them really carefully. I mean, the, is that part yeah. of why it takes so long? Well, it, it wouldn't hurt if you didn't protect them. That You can't be like... Oh, this is the phase where I'm going to let go of the part I've been protecting. Come squeeze lemon. It's like you don't know what's coming. Yeah. Even if you have a PhD. And then it's like, it, it, this is a stage of parenting. Winnicott, Donald Winnicott, says, you know, a, a, a child needs to kill their parent and the parent not die. You know, like this phase with kids, you know, where the kid needs to really wound the father or the mother or the caregiver, and the caregiver doesn't leave. They're right there. You know? And then the kid realizes they have this in them, and that it's okay. You know? And that... um, their caregiver really cares for them. And the test... Maybe some of us have wounded our parent and they've left. Or they haven't known how to really meet that. Or maybe some of us are parents and we don't explore how we're getting killed. But we're not leaving. So so, so this is... Uh, back up to what you're saying. I mean, maybe this is something important. It's like to see how you want to kill the community or people in the community or certain beliefs of the community, but to be patient and to see what's going on for you there. But it doesn't mean you go, oh, it's all me. Right? Yeah. Is, it, is it kind of like testing the waters in preparation for the next stage, in preparation for commitment? It's kind of like... At an existential level it is. Yeah. But... It doesn't feel like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is the phase we're just actually this is just we're testing each other. It feels like this is the end. we're at the last we're at the end. Do you know what I mean? Like, like intellectually, yes, this is where you're testing each other, and but actually, it should feel like you're going to die. Yeah. Because actually, you are the you that you've been for them has to die, and the them that they've been for you has to die mm-hmm. has to die and if it, it doesn't get shed then the relationship's a little bit superficial I would say actually yeah. 
And that's the level of intimacy that n- nobody wants. Right? I mean, we say, oh, yeah, I want that kind of deep commitment. But actually, we don't. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're totally geared to maintaining the image that you can't maintain. And it's not your fault. It's part of our psychology. You're not doing this. Like, you don't have to feel bad. Yeah. Did you have your hand? Mm-hmm. Um, I was just wondering... The deep connections that you make, um, and, and they enter stage two, mm-hmm. do you want, ideally, to take all of them into stage three, or is it okay to let some of them go? Yeah. Because um, I've watched some mm-hmm. of them. Some of them are in stage two, and yeah. some of them have transitioned into stage yeah. three unexpectedly. Yeah. Um, but some of them, I'm like, maybe I just want to let it go. Yeah. Even though they were really deep and significant. Yeah. I'm not sure. I mean, maybe time will change that, but Mm. I'm just wondering, is it okay sometimes to just let them go? Mm -hmm. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. I think it's different for everybody. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm not so big on letting go. Mm -hmm. I, I think that you don't really have to let go of anything. It's just things just uh, need to be worked through until mm, you can see how they're not yours anyways. You can't let something go that wasn't yours anyways. Kind of a backwards way of thinking about it. You can meditate on that. Yeah. I'm curious uh, what's happening, why you're saying that there should be a, a good long pause between the honeymoon and the commitment. No, between the end of the honeymoon yeah. and the commitment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense for me, though, I'm wondering if it's for the same reasons. Like, I see it, at least in myself, because yeah. when it ends, I keep trying to recreate it. Like, mm. You know, have a new honeymoon in a different way. It's, yeah. Is that what yeah, to explore, like, what, what are you really committing to? It's so easy just to commit again to the romanticized version. I'm all for romance. I'm, I'm totally into romance. 500% romance. But there has to be some something real in there. And... Um, um, when the romance is blinding, you know, we talked about this last week, the triangle of romance, and you know, that has to get collapsed before we really know what we're committed to. And what you're committed to is internal, actually. The values you're committed to are internal, and I think that's what serves the relational. You know? yeah. Does that make sense? Slow motion, man. Because, uh, you know, you know how many people come, they're like, it's great, I'm so happy I'm here. It's their first day, you know. And, I want to be your student. How do I sign up? And like, you can't. There's nothing to sign. <laughs> we don't even have those plastic cards that all the cl- uh, studios have, you know, when you 
I don't even know what kind of information is on there, you know. Um, there's nothing to join here, actually. And like what we're doing is we're in a pressure cooker until um, the honeymoon ends. And it ends at a different time for everybody. And then some people leave and they should. And some people uh, see what's going on. And they stick around. And uh, then hang out in that phase. And then see what it is we need to commit to. What that means. Because at the beginning, especially from reading too many books, we have a really (coughs) idealistic version of what commitment is. Okay, one one more. Yeah. Oh, I was just wondering, so you can think about these relationships not only with communities, but also as relationships with your practice. Is that... Totally. And is it harder... I'm, so I, I feel like um, that, that some of these stages, um, you know, as we... As we practice, some of our hopefully, you know, some of our troubles lessen. Yeah. You know, we, we see. Yeah. We see more clearly. Yeah. And hopefully, if we're lucky, we're angry less often. Yeah. But I guess the trick is just to make sure that we're still feeling and being present. Neti, neti, neti. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think what you're saying is, so it's like this? No, no. (laughs) And if it's not like this, then will it be like... It seems difficult to know... Okay, I'm not... You know, I'm not blissed out all the time, but I'm nowhere near suffering like I was, let's say, five years ago. Yeah. You know what I mean? So finding that that balance and my being realistic... I would just end the sentence five years ago. Yeah. And then as soon as you start going, so am I balanced? Am I? Then, then I think it's again like a, like, like trying to create a kind of narrative about where we are in the practice, that I think sets us up. Maybe another way of saying is like, your practice is not your business. Don't look at it. Well, you can't have a relationship with your practice because it's not yours. It's y- your life and your practice are the same thing. You can't have a practice. It's like when someone goes, you know, I have a, a meditation practice, I have an art practice, whatever. You can't have a practice. It's your life, and um, if you have a practice, there's a there's a fragmentation there that I would. Like when people say, like, oh, this is personal and this is business? Yeah, that's really ethical business, I'm sure. You know, oh, but that's just the business. <laughs> can you observe it? Is observing it having it? Or is it, can you be an observer? Of your practice? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe from like 25 years in the future. Well, I think the reason why we're looking at these eight stages is like it's giving us a bit of a map to see some of the stages. And you go through one, you go through all eight stages all in one day, and you go through all eight stages over uh, 20 years. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm.
Isn't it like if you if you're within your practice or your life and you refer to this and you kind of call on one and you're like, oh, I'm in this place, then you're creating a narrative again. And sure. Yeah, and then the practice has techniques in it for you to not get caught in your narrative about the practice. And any really good religion, I mean, uh, spirituality, (laughs) um, I did did this thing uh, on the radio on the weekend. I sometimes go on the CBC and Every time I go on, they change my bio, and they take out the word Buddhist every time. So this time I rewrote the bio and I handed it. And then just before we were going on the air, she was like writing, and I'm like, "What are you doing?" She's like, "Oh, I, I'm I'm just uh, uh, doing a summary bio." I said, "I just rewrote you the bio, you know." And so the word Buddhist becomes mindfulness. He teaches mindfulness. So that's okay. I don't. I don't mind. But um, <laughs> the the point is, is that like a religion is this incredible conversation that has gone on for thousands of years amongst really intelligent, committed people, and that conversation has developed ways of working with the shadows of that system. You see, every system has a shadow, but a good system has systems to take care of the shadow of the system. People have thought of this before. And so when you go deep in a system, usually there's a system that is deep because it has ways of taking into account the shadows of that system. And the reason why we practice looking at the eight stages here is because we're, and and adding more, actually I added ten today to one of the stages, is because we're trying to do psychology on psychology. So it's like we're taking the psychology of practice and we're turning it on itself so that we're doing, we're psychoanalyzing psychoanalysis and we're, we're turning the practice on itself. Uh, like a snake eating its own tail. And uh, I think religious systems last because they do this. And human beings also don't like that they do this so that they change what the system's about. But anyways, that's a whole other talk. So let's finish here. Uh, We'll finish chanting, and then there's a couple of announcements.